So finally, I just had to say, Ricky, your case is over, and they're going to execute you. Welcome back to the Thriving Lawyers podcast. This is Michael Kahn. I am one half of real-time creative learning experiences. My partner and co-founder is Chris Osborne. We created this podcast as an opportunity to talk with other lawyers about how they cope and thrive in the practice of law so we can build a community of lawyers who help each other. That's why we call it the Thriving Lawyers podcast, plural because we want to build a community of lawyers to support each other. I am a former lawyer and currently a licensed professional counselor. And we have yet another excellent guest for the podcast today, Sean O'Brien, who is a lawyer and a professor at the University of Missouri, Kansas City Law School. We uh, met Sean doing a program for the UMKC uh, CLE division of the law school. And I'm going to throw it over to Sean. Welcome, Sean, by the way. Thank you. It's good to be here. And I guess I want to start with you, Sean, to just as a backdrop, really, let the listeners know your journey as a lawyer and, and ultimately to talk about what you're doing now. Sure. A lot of people who know me are surprised to find out that out of law school, I aspired to be a tax real estate corporate <laughs> lawyer doing civil wow. litigation. Yeah, I did that for a year. So I walked away from a good job, a good in terms of the compensation, and landed in the public defender's office in Jackson County, which is urban Kansas City. Became a, an assistant public defender. And within three years, I was the chief public defender. And so I was the chief public defender through the 1980s. I left that job in 1990 to become director of a nonprofit that represented people on death row. And so working on death row, the one thing that really surprised me is the number of people on death row who have viable innocence claims. Um, so my first innocence work I got involved with was on behalf of death row inmates. I've been involved in four cases where people were tried, convicted, sentenced to death, and then exonerated and released based on new evidence that my team and I were able to uncover. And so that was a federally funded program until 1996. And I was able to use my tax wherewithal and, and experience and knowledge to reorganize the company, the nonprofit law firm, and continue doing the work without uh, the assistance of federal funding, but basically through a combination of charitable grants and court-appointed counsel fees and things like that until 2005 when I joined the faculty at UMKC Law School, uh, where I teach criminal law, criminal procedure, and I'm still involved in clinical work where I represent people on death row and I represent people who have claims of innocence. And I'm also representing people who just got screwed over by the system. <laughs> and you don't have to be innocent to have been screwed over by the system. That's a really good point, Sean. You, uh, I don't think you mentioned this. You also help run some, some of the clinics there at the uh, law school, right? Yes, I do a wrongful convictions clinic where we do focus primarily on innocence cases. And I uh, do a death penalty representation clinic where, you know, obviously we do nothing but death penalty work through that clinic. It used to be a post-conviction clinic, but we've won all of our cases. So now it's a trial clinic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's, that's good. 
Yeah. That, that says something for the work you do, doesn't it? I don't know if I could do it if I had not been successful at it. The last mm-hmm. time I had a client executed uh, was Ricky Grubbs in 1992. Mm-hmm. And I've been doing almost nothing but death penalty work with you know some innocence work thrown in. But not to have lost a client in that time, I'm not only really proud of that, I'm really relieved by that because mm-hmm. it was such a horrible experience. Uh, maybe that's part of why I've been successful because of the sense that I never want to see that happen again. Did you? So you actually did witness that? I didn't. I had a friend in uh, a colleague, a co-counsel who was in the prison. I was in the office doing all of the legal work. But because of the way the last minute litigation worked, I was on the phone with the client. He had already been isolated for preparation for execution. And so my co-counsel was actually in the prison in a private room, not able to know what was going on while I was um, on the phone with the client and the Supreme Court and, you know, taking care of the legal filings, which at that point, you know, a, a briefing schedule that is normally measured in months is measured in hours. We got a temporary stay of execution from Justice Blackman at just a few minutes before midnight. And then we got a briefing schedule that required us to file our certiorari petition by 8 a.m. Hmm. the next morning. Wow. The other side had until noon to reply, and we had until 2 p.m. to respond to that. And the execution took place at a little bit after 8 o'clock that night. And who did you deliver the news to? I did. I did. This was uh, a mentally retarded defendant. His name was Ricky Grubbs. And no one, before we got involved in the case, no one had done what we call a biopsychosocial history, a background investigation where uh, you find mental health issues. And, and I got into the case about 30 days before the execution. And so we're doing a lot of work in a short amount of time. But the first visit I had with them, it was really clear to me. I volunteered in college at a sheltered workshop. And it was really clear to me that he was someone who belonged there and not on death row. We found a teacher. We got his school records. He'd been in special ed. He'd been assessed and uh, diagnosed as mentally retarded. Um, as early as the third grade, he finally dropped out of school in the sixth grade at the age of 16. So that gives you kind of an idea of his uh, intellect. So we were making the argument that he should have been sentenced to death because he was mentally retarded. We were also arguing that all of the previous lawyers on the case really botched it because none of them picked up on the fact that he was mentally retarded. In fact, he had a trial that ended in a hung jury and then and he had testified in that trial. And then he had a second trial where he did not testify and he was sentenced to death. So we found that juror who held out and it turned out she was a special ed teacher. And she said, I can't believe nobody said a word about the fact that he was mentally retarded. And there was no way that he could have had the mental state for a capital crime. He was so childlike. And she picked up on that just from his testimony. And she was just stunned by it. So she actually became very helpful in trying to stop the execution. So the legal argument we floated up to the U.S. Supreme Court was that a mentally retarded client should not be bound by the legal mistakes mm-hmm. of his lawyer in a case where his life is at stake. Yeah, Justice Blackman wanted to hear more about that, but uh, the rest of the court apparently did not. Wow. 
And is that something that can legally happen today that a person who has that limited cognitive ability to understand not only what they've done, but the legal proceedings and everything else can get to the point where they are executed? The way you phrase the question, uh, I have to qualify the response. Legally, it cannot happen. (laughs) But (laughs) does it happen? Uh, It still continues to happen because that's that's from a naive questioner. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But as we're going through this, Cedric Brown, my co-counsel and I are trying to keep him advised of what's going on. And the clerk of the Supreme Court at the time was a fellow named Chris Vassell, who's just an amazing human being. He's very sympathetic. And he called me at, you know, at eight o'clock night after the warrant supposed to be carried out. And he said, uh, the Supreme Court has denied your petition. He he was so nice about telling me, but how do you deliver that news? He's almost like a mortician, you know, but he told me, I'm going to wait 20 minutes before I call the government and tell them that the court has lifted the stay so that you can talk to your client. And so very kind of him to do. So I I got him on the phone and Cedric was not there. He couldn't be with him at that point because he was in the death watch chamber with the gurney right outside his door. And I told him, Ricky, we just uh, lost your case and, uh, and it's over. And Ricky said, well, what about my petition for certiorari. And I said, because he couldn't pronounce certiorari, but he, I said, no, he, he, that was denied. That was it. And he said, well, what's next? And I said, mm-hmm. yeah. and generally you try to deliver this news in indirect language, you know, to a client uh, to try to soften the blow. And he said, well, what's next? Well, it's the Supreme Court. Uh, there is no higher court. Well, what does that mean? And so finally, I just had to say, Ricky, your case is over and they are going to execute you right now. And as I was delivering that news, the guards came in and took him off the phone and he said, okay, well, thank you. And that was the end of it. He was dead within a few minutes of that. So this was 25 years ago. Is that right? October 20, 1992. 1992. Yeah. And as you're telling me the story now, what is that bring up for you. It's still troubling. You know, one of the things about Ricky was that he was really religious and he just knew God was going to save him. Uh, And we were telling him, we're going to fight like hell. We're going to do everything we can. But he had confidence all through the evening. And I kind of did too. I thought they would want to look at that issue. And then in the end, when it became inevitable that he was going to die, he maybe had three minutes to think about what was happening to him. And you know, you'd like to think somebody would have a little more time than that to think about what's next for them after death. Sure. Yeah. So you said that's the that's the only prisoner you've ever worked with who's been executed? Yes. Wow. Yeah. But, you know, you certainly, I would imagine you've had close calls since then. And of course, any new case you take on, you don't know for sure how it's going to go. So, and let me say too, just as an aside, your daughter, Quinn actually works with you. She's, uh, she's an investigator, correct? Right. She works with me and she, she primarily works with me in innocence cases, but she also helps me with death penalty cases. One of the things she's really good at 
is marshalling witnesses for an evidentiary hearing. And that just takes a tremendous amount of stress off of me. She takes after her mother and she's really nurturing of the whole team. <laughs> so, uh -huh. Uh -huh. you know, when there's a recess for lunch, we've always got sandwiches in the, in our oh, wow. outside of the court. And, you know, she knows where all the witnesses are and what's going on. So plus she's very good in the field. So Quinn and I together, most of the cases that we do, there are innocence cases and she's actually worked some cases that are both death penalty cases and innocence cases with me. Yeah, um, she's impressive. Quinn's been in a couple programs we've done with you and she's she's amazing in terms of her work ethic and her attitude and her empathy and compassion. I couldn't be more proud. I'm, I'm a mm. lucky fellow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But just back to that question I asked you, how do you stay in this work? Again, knowing that goodness and, you know, one is too many, of course, but you, you, you've had the one in 1992, Ricky, but none since then, but there's certainly the possibility along the way. And I'm sure you've seen, like you said, even the folks who are rightly convicted are mistreated by the system. So what keeps you in this, in this work? Well, it's compelling work. And if I were a corporate lawyer, I mean, as I once was a corporate lawyer, there were 50 people lined up to take that job. Mm -hmm. And if I leave any of my current clients and look over to my shoulder to say, to see who's going to come take this case over, there's nobody there. And so it's something that absolutely must be done. And if, if I don't do it, I know mm -hmm. that if it gets done at all, it'll get done by less qualified people or maybe less motivated people. It, it's a calling. I mean, it's something that I didn't start out to do, but once you see it, once you understand what the system is for poor people, particularly poor people with mental health problems, yeah. you realize that you know once you're aware of this problem, you can't ignore it. Um, you just can't. Most of us can drive down the interstate and see a penitentiary off uh, off to the side and just keep on driving and not give it a second thought. But I can't do that. <laughs> yeah, my work, actually, part of my work when I was a lawyer, I represented the Department of Corrections for the Attorney General's Office in New Jersey. And, and I visited a lot of the prisons in the state, including the Supermax prison, uh, Trenton State, and got to know some of the inmates. And mm -hmm. it really, it really helped me humanize the folks there. Most of the folks I interacted with were good people. You know, they made made some bad choices, but I had good rapport with almost all of them, and it was really a, a good experience for me. And also to just to see the uh, living in that world, you know, going in through through the different security uh, gates that I had to go through, and being back there and seeing what that was like was a, a life changing experience for me. Me too, because. Uh, of course, my, you know, my job is to uncover the human dignity, you know, the innate mm -hmm. humanity of the client. And, and even in an environment as harsh as a maximum security prison, and especially death row, I'm just inspired by the way that my clients have managed to assert their humanity in the face of, you know, daily, minute to minute denial of their very humanity. And, you know, New Jersey wasn't big on the death penalty. Uh, they've since repealed it, I think. And so, you know, it's probably qualitatively different, I think. Although every system has its supermax facilities, 
But you see people find art, poetry, you know, they write, they, their artistic expression that comes out of death row is just amazing. So in the, one of the programs we just did with you, we uh, used the film Just Mercy as the kind of jumping off point in the discussion about uh, Brian Stevenson and his work with this one particular wrongly convicted man. And, and there's a scene in the movie where he and Eva Ainsley who is his operations director at the Equal Justice Initiative, she was talking to him about how she observed how personal he gets, how close he gets with his clients, the ones he's working with to unjustly convicted uh, folks that he's working to get off of death row, get out of prison. And they say in the scene, she recognized that he couldn't do this work without making it personal. And of course, the guidance we often get, like me as a therapist, for sure, but even as lawyers, is not to make a case too personal, not to personalize it. So I'm I'm wondering where where you land on that issue. Well, death penalty cases are certainly different. I mean, the Equal Justice Initiative started out as the Alabama Capital Punishment Resource Center. And when I said, Mm -hmm. you know, in 1990, I joined, became director of an organization called the Missouri Capital Punishment Resource Center. Brian and I were both part of the same federally funded program. And he and I were doing this same work at the same time. He was in Alabama. I was in Missouri. But I was learning a lot from Brian as I was going forward. And And Brian and I talked about the transition from losing federal funding into taking it into a not-for-profit legal organization. And he, he did a much better job of that than I did. <laughs> I don't I like Brian's charisma, but God bless him for uh, being able to do that. He's an amazing, mm-hmm. amazing person. But uh, yeah, you do have to get close to the client because you're fighting for somebody's life. And you cannot convince a jury that your client is a decent human being who loves other people and is loved by other people and has redeeming qualities and deserves to be, as Brian says, uh, deserves not to be judged by the worst thing they've ever done, Mm -hmm. uh, but to have the jury uh, consider all of these other things. And the kind of things we're often talking about, some of my clients have survived some of the most horrible physical and sexual abuse. And you can't get a client to talk to you about things like that unless they feel that there's a good, strong, not just a professional rapport, but a, a personal rapport. And so to do it well and to do it right, you must make that human connection. And so if I keep that professional distance, as people say, then I can't do this kind of work effectively. And then, you know, so you, you make friendships and relationships. And mm-hmm. uh, I get letters from clients every day. I got one from uh, Stevie Parkus today, a mentally retarded prisoner I was appointed to right after Ricky Grubbs' execution. And fortunately, uh, we were able to, to stop Steve's execution. And he's now in a mental health unit in the Missouri prison system. And he writes me letters and I put money on his books and I go see him every once in a while. And in terms of his life, he's as happy as he, he has ever been. Uh, that's what I was going to comment on, that you stay in touch with some of the clients that you've worked with yeah. that you've gotten out of prison. Yeah, Joe Amrine, who you met, is exactly uh, mowing yeah. Quinn's yard right now, even as we speak. It's <laughs> <laughs> right. which I pay him well. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. He does get paid for that. He gets yeah. paid well for that. I pay him more than I would pay someone else to do it. But, yeah. <laughs> 
Thanks for listening to part one of my interview with Sean O'Brien. Please join us next week for part two. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Thriving Lawyers podcast. We love hearing from our loyal listeners, so please feel free to email us any questions, comments, suggested topics, or guest recommendations at the following address, feedback at thrivinglawyerspodcast.com. The Thriving Lawyers podcast is brought to you by Real-Time Creative Learning Experiences, a national provider of continuing legal education and professional development programs that leave participants engaged, encouraged, and equipped to pursue meaningful and sustainable change in their practices, their lives, and the organizations they work in. And by Osborne Conflict Resolution, your experienced guides through the uncharted terrain of business and family law disputes based out of Charlotte, North Carolina. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Thriving Lawyers Podcast.